the problem with evangelicalism is it's the selling of the gospel. And the way you sell the gospel in a capitalist society is you offer the greatest possible product at the cheapest price. Mm. And what we're offering is you get to go to heaven and all you have to do is believe this. It has nothing to do with transformation. It has nothing to do with becoming like him. Hello, my wonderful friends, and welcome back to another episode of the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and uh, this is episode number 31. And for this episode, uh, I sat down with Dr. James Danaher, who, interestingly enough, was my philosophy professor from way back at uh, Nyack College, and he came to talk about his book, uh, his newest book, Truth, Prayer, Identity, and the Spiritual Journey. So real quick, I'll never forget uh, the first class I had with this guy. It was the year 2000, and the class was Philosophy 101, Introduction to Philosophy. It was my very first ever college class, and uh, it took place Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 8 a.m. Uh, philosophy at 8 o'clock in the morning on a Monday. Mind-blowing. Uh, very difficult. Uh, it was, like I said, my first class ever, and then, oh man, my brain is just hurting thinking about it. I remember this guy talking about Aristotle and Plato and the forms and the shadows and the caves, and I remember just sitting there at 8 o'clock in the morning going, what on earth is this guy talking about? Uh, but man, I loved the class. Um, I still remember a whole lot of the stuff that we talked about. Um, and Danaher is just a really great guy. So anyways, as you'll see from this episode, uh, Dr. Danaher is someone who has always challenged my thinking and really pushed me to think bigger about God and life and faith. And his book tackles some really big topics. And then he really pokes at a few bears in this episode and definitely, I think, rocks the boat a little bit. And I know for myself, I came away feeling really encouraged and challenged by the things that he shared, and I think that you will as well. So special music uh, this week is from Before Jane, so go check them out on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you listen to good tunes. All the links will be in the show notes. Uh, Before Jane is headed up by a really good friend of mine. He's a good guy, a loving guy, a God-filled guy, um, just a all-around amazing human being. So go show him some love Download his music and share it all over your social media. Do that for him. Uh, Speaking of showing some love, did you know, did you know that the What If Project is now on Patreon? So you can become a patron of the What If Project podcast by visiting patreon.com slash whatifproject and signing up to financially support the project on one of four different tiers, ranging from $3 a month to $30 a month. And each tier has its own reward. And uh, just so you know, all money goes towards paying for uh, the hosting of the blog and the podcast, as well as buying me a new microphone uh, that doesn't randomly move while I'm talking, because sometimes that's distracting and annoying. So seven people have already signed up, and uh, I love you all so much. I just, if I could just brag on you guys for a second... Um, I know that it can be a really big commitment to say that you're going to give a certain amount of money every single month, and uh, I am beyond grateful that you decided to share some of that 
money with uh, the What If Project. So thank you for believing in this. Uh, thank you for believing in what we are building here. Uh, your gift and your words of encouragement and support, honest to goodness, put fuel in my tank uh, to keep on going. So thank you so much and uh, much, much love to you, my dear dear friend. So anyway, all of that to say, uh, again, this is episode number 31, my chat with Dr. James Danaher, my philosophy 101 professor. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Today we get to sit down with someone that I have known uh, for almost probably 20 years of my life, uh, my philosophy professor back at Nyack College. He's a philosopher, professor, writer. I would call him a comedian, uh, Dr. James Danaher. <laughs> Doctor, welcome to the podcast, my friend. It's good to have you along. How you doing, Glenn? Doing very, very well. It's good to catch up with you. So uh, to catch everybody else up to speed, um, and myself as well, on the life of the, uh, the good doctor, what are, you, uh, what are you teaching these days? What's going on in your life? Uh, who are well, you? I'm what are you much, doing? I'm pretty much retired now. I'm, I'm okay. emeritus uh, at Nyack, but I still do one class in the city. Okay. Uh, uh, and writing. Uh, I, I'm, I'm big into a book right now on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm just obsessed with it. The sermon is so unbelievable. Mm. It's hard to think about anything else or want to do anything else, but trying to really understand. Does anybody pay attention to the Sermon on the Mount, the things that Jesus is saying? Mm. It's just unbelievable stuff. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes I don't think we read the Sermon on the Mount and we just... Like, ah, it's cool. It's a nice sermon. But if you think yeah. about it, I mean, there's so much in there that is so applicable to, uh, to life and, and to what, our world. Whatever, you, whatever your theology is or your doctrine, uh, the sermon will blow it away. Mm. Just, uh, you know, he says things that are just unbelievable. Uh, mm. You know, if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. Yeah. How, how do we work that into our theology? We don't. We just ignore it. Mm. Just ignore it, you know? We think that can't possibly be true, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's just the words of Jesus. You know? That's right. That's right. So you wrote this new book, uh, Truth, Prayer, Identity, and the Spiritual Journey. And uh, I got a sneak peek at it, and it is a uh, game changer book for me, uh, for sure. And I especially love the stuff that you share about prayer, because I feel like my prayer has, life has gotten kind of boring. Um, so I'm looking forward to kind of getting into that with you in a few minutes, but I always like to ask authors this question. Like if you had to elevator pitch this book, uh, you meet somebody in the elevator, they ask you, what do you do? You say, I'm an author. I just wrote this book. Uh, and they say, well, what's it about? Like, what's your answer? Give us like a few mm-hmm. minutes summary of this book. Yeah. I think, uh, Paragon house did such a great job on the back cover of the book. It really nails it. Uh, it's it, the book is about those three things, truth, prayer, and identity. And truth is not something to know. Aristotle had said that we're involved uh, in three basic activities of doing, making, and knowing. And when we do, we want to do what's good. When we make, we want to make what's beautiful. And when we know, we want to know what's true. And we've really inherited that tradition. But when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, he's not talking about something to know. He's talking about something to be. Mm. And uh, the second thing that we have to really change our understanding of is prayer. Prayer is not about petitioning God. It's about getting to that place where you're alone with God 
And uh, all of a sudden, the words of Jesus make sense from that deep place in God. Mm. Uh, and then the, the third thing is that I argue that prayer is really about establishing an identity in God. Mm. It's kind of interesting in the sermon. Jesus, right in the middle of the sermon, he says that uh, the basic three spiritual activities of almsgiving, prayer, and fasting is never supposed to be done in public. He says, go into your inner room, you know, and it's finding that inner room, that place in God, uh, and starting to identify with that place in God rather than the place of, of who we are in the world. Mm. And I think a lot of Christians uh, think that who they are in the world is really who they are. Mm. And it's not. It's that That's the false identity, the identity that we're projecting to the world. And we want everybody to believe where we are. Mm. But when you're alone in that, in that inner room with God, you can see that false self and you go, oh, I'm, I'm such a jerk, you know, <laughs> uh, you, can, you can be honest because God's got a hold of you and uh, he, he lets you look at yourself and you can come to the repentance that Jesus is always calling us to. Mm. You know, Christianity has been selling itself as, as a way to become righteous. And Jesus is always talking about repentance, repentance, change your mind, change your mind. That's not who God is. That's not who you are. Yeah, that's really good. I love what you said about the the inner room, because I know even like myself growing up, like you read that verse where, you know, Jesus says to go into your, into your room and, you know, make sure nobody knows that you're praying and stuff like that. But like, we always, I was always taught that that was like a physical place. Like that's something you really need to do. You need to go someplace. Nobody knows that you're praying and do your own thing. But I love how you bring that element into it, that going into your inner room of prayer is where, you know, a quiet place in yourself that you can meet with God and yeah. you can see the true God and the true God can see the true you and you guys can, you know, you can interact together in that place. Yeah. The silence of God is the one thing that runs throughout the 2000 years of Christian history. The mm. doctrines and the theologies change from generation to generation. But that mystic tradition, uh, it starts with the Desert Fathers and runs all the way up to Thomas Merton in the 20th century and what, what you see happening today. Mm. And what's so cool about it is that you see this happening in science too. Science is coming to a mystical place of realizing we can't even figure out how the physical universe works. Mm. It's a mystery. And if the, the universe itself is a mystery, how much more is the God behind that? That's right. Uh, I, I'm pretty big into apophatic theology, you know, uh, not knowing. God is way bigger than our knowing. And uh, even the spirit, the, the spirit that we experience in prayer, it's an experience, but it's not a knowable experience. Uh, the only thing that's really knowable is Jesus. Uh, he's, he's who God would be if God became a human being. Mm. And I think that's, that's what we can know. But it's not uh, an epistemic knowing. It's not having a head knowledge and thinking that, well, my doctrine or my uh, theology has now captured God. It's about Jesus' words capturing us, you know. I saw somebody on Facebook a little while ago. They said, well, Danaher used to always say it's just about holding on to Jesus, and I, I commented and said, I, I probably did say that years ago. I don't say that anymore. It's about Jesus holding on to me. Mm. Uh, Jesus has just got a hold of me. And his words, I, I've been internalizing those words in order to become Jesus to the world. Mm. And that's what he calls all of us to do. Uh, that's really good. 
a minute ago, you said something about apathetic theology. Yeah. Well, it's cataphatic and apophatic. Okay. Can you take that apart just a little bit? Sure. Cataphatic is, uh, we know that God is this and this and this and all the things that we know about God. Mm. Apophatic theology is the cloud of unknowing. It's the mystics understanding that, no, God is beyond all words. He's beyond all being. He's the source of all being. And and any time we use words to describe God, they're they're always metaphors. They're always uh, fingers pointing at the moon. Uh, it's it's not. That's why it's so interesting in the Gospels. Jesus says very little about God. He tells us who we should be in response to God, mm-hmm. and he shows us who God would be if he became a human being. But he has very little to say about God. And when he does say something, it's shocking. You know, like in, in Luke 6 chapter, he says, we're supposed to be like our heavenly father, who's kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Uh, where have we heard that before? We've never heard that. Uh, we've never heard that. This is this is this unbelievable revelation that is the Gospels. Mm. That's really good. So um, this is the What If Project. And uh, as you know, part of what I do here is kind of explore that question of what if there are ways of understanding the Bible uh, and faith and spirituality and God and Jesus that are different than the ways in which our tradition has uh, handed us. And so to be blind, as I was reading your book, I think that tradition has really handed us, I think, like a lot of crappy ideas about truth and, and prayer and identity, spiritual journey. And so what I wanted to do is just basically try to ask you like one question revolving around truth, one about prayer, one about identity, kind of wrap spiritual journey into all of them. So hopefully I and my uh, listeners, we can come away with maybe a little bit of a better um, perspective on some of these um, topics. So I want to start off with uh, truth. And uh, early on in the book, you have a quote. You said, our perspectives change as new data baffles our old ways of making sense of the world and require us to come up with new ways of thinking about our experience. So in other words, like the way I read it was that things that we once thought were 100% truth might prove to maybe not be as true as we thought once we receive new data, new understanding. And that kind of pushes us to come up with this um, new thinking or understanding about those things. So that makes me wonder, like, how might this approach to truth help us understand God in a better way? Because for me, like I've pastored two churches in my life and I've been involved in a lot of other ones for internships, volunteer work. And one of the things that's always like driven me bananas is this idea that since God never changes, our ideas and thoughts about him really shouldn't change either. And so I guess my question is like the quote I just read, when new experiences in our life like baffle our old ways of making sense of God, to what extent do you think that we're allowed, so to speak, to come up with new ways to think about, understand, and maybe even talk about him? Like, What's that look like? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm always amazed at Christians who claim to have a personal relationship with Jesus, mm. but their concept of God hasn't changed in the last 30 years. Mind-boggling. How, how yes. is that possible? Right. How, how can you have a personal relationship with someone and your your understanding of them not changing? Mm. That's That means that you don't have a relationship with that person. Sure. You just have a theology. You have a doctrine. Mm. And you think that that's somehow sacred. Uh, the, the Bible is the revelation of our understanding of who God is. And it begins with uh, thinking that, oh, God is, he's this guy that wants obedience. You know, I, uh, 
in doing the Sermon on the Mount book right now, I'm comparing it to uh, when you're a little kid and your parents, they're all about obedience. They're always telling you what to do. And all they care about is obedience. And that's the way we think as a little kid. Well, when you get older, you understand it was never about obedience. It was about trying to make us like them, mm. trying to build character into us. This is why Jesus, when Jesus comes along, he says, look, uh, the, it was never about obedience. It was about making you like God in terms of love. Love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. It's about love, uh, and especially making us into his merciful and forgiving likeness. This is why, uh, you know, Henry Nouwen says, if you get the story of the prodigal, you get the gospel. Mm. And if you don't get the story of the prodigal, you don't get the gospel. The one son does it right. And that turns out to be bad. The other son does it wrong. And that turns out to be good. Why? Because it's not about obedience. It's about becoming like the father in terms of mercy and forgiveness. Mm. And that's the whole project. Uh, and that's where, and that's why the great guys in the Old Testament are the Jonas, are the Davids. Uh, they don't do it right. But they, they come to know God in a way that the righteous never do. And that's, you know, I think the gospel is played out in every generation. In every generation, it's the religious people who claim to be righteous uh, before God, and then the repentant sinners who actually experience God and his mercy and forgiveness. And that's, that's the biblical revelation. But people don't read it that way. They, uh, they think that, you know, Moby Dick is about a whale. And it's not. There's something <laughs> going on here. Right. And uh, that's what you really, you have to really see. Jesus says that he didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill the law. And then he destroys the law. Right. Uh, six times he says, you were told by the ancients, but I say. And he tells you something completely different. Hmm. Why? Because he's the fulfillment of the law. He's showing you what the law was meant to do, which is to bring us to mercy and forgiveness. That's good. I like that too about the prodigal son. I guess if you think about it, the prodigal son, you know, lived in his father's house and then he left his father's house, went out and had all these new experiences and experienced the world for himself. And when he came back yeah. to the father, he had a completely different understanding of who the father was yeah, exactly. and what it meant to live in the father's house. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's, that's why Jesus says there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous. Mm. How else do you interpret that? What, what's that telling you? And we religious people are always trying to be righteous. We want to do it right. And it's about, if you really pay attention to Jesus' words, it's about seeing how wrong we do it. Mm. And, and repenting and experiencing God's mercy and forgiveness. And it's that mercy and forgiveness, the constant flow of that mercy and forgiveness in response to our repentance that really changes us. You know, uh, we, we, I taught and you went to a, a Alliance College mm. and, you know, uh, A.B. Simpson, it was the idea of the fourfold gospel, you know, yeah. Yeah. Jesus as savior, as sanctifier, healer and coming king. And we just want to put everything into being savior. You know, it's all about the cross. And that's I, I certainly believe in the mystery of the cross. What happened on that <laughs> cross? We're going to spend eternity trying to understand. Right. That mystery of forgiveness that Jesus reveals from the cross. But the sanctification comes through Jesus' words and our repentance before them. Mm. 
That's what sanctifies us and begins to make us merciful and forgiving as we start to receive all of this mercy and forgiving of forgiveness for not living the way Jesus is calling us to live. And getting to the idea of prayer, we can't do that from who we are in the world. From who we are in the world, it, come on, nobody's going to love their enemies. Nobody's going to, you know, refuse to respond to violence with, with, uh, by not responding to violence. Nobody's going to give to all who ask. But when you spend a lot of time in God's presence, you start going, you know what? I think I can do that. Mm-hmm. I think I am loving my enemies. Yeah. I think, you know, but it comes from spending time in his presence. Mm. Uh, all of a sudden, when you're in his presence, the words of Jesus start making sense. Mm. You know, that's really good. Why do you think going back to what you said a, a minute ago, you talked about how when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth and the life, he wasn't talking so much about knowing he was talking about being. And yeah. wh- why is that? Why do you think what? as church people, we have so much difficulty sometimes wrapping our ourselves around that idea that, you know, being a follower of Jesus isn't so much about knowing and having all the right beliefs and the right doctrines, but it's, it's about a way of being in the world because it's just like such a different, I feel like form of Christianity than what we have in the West. And why do, why do you think that is? Why do you think it's so difficult for people myself included to wrap our minds around that? Well, you know, we both come out of evangelical colleges and, Mm -hmm. uh, and the problem with evangelicalism is it's the selling of the gospel. And the way you sell the gospel in a capitalist society is you offer the greatest possible product at the cheapest price. Mm. And what we're offering is you get to go to heaven and all you have to do is believe this. That's right. It has nothing to do with transformation. It has nothing to do with becoming like him. So we have a, we have a church that uh, everybody's righteous. We've been made righteous through the cross. Uh, that's the beginning of the journey, and we're painting it as the end of the journey. Uh, people love the world, and they want to stay in the world. And what's being offered is you can have Jesus and the world. What a deal. What a deal. That was the Old Testament. God met us in the world. That's why we love the Bible, and we hate the Gospels. Uh, because the Bible is about God meeting us and blessing us in the world. That's what we want. Jesus is about the kingdom and calling us out of the world. And we go, no. I like the other better. <laughs> I like the other message better. I like the Bible. I don't like, you know. And we've even come to, to believe. I, can't, I find this so strange. But we've come to believe that the Bible is the word of God. It is not. It is not. It never claims to be. It does tell us what is the word of God. The first chapter of John's gospel says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things came into being through this word. And also in the 19th chapter of Revelation, it says, uh, his name is the word of God. Hmm. And Jesus says at the end of the sermon, build your house upon the rock. And then he tells you what the rock is. It's his words. Hmm. And then the the seed parables, you know, Jesus says a man went out to sow seed and some of the seed and he goes through all the different seeds where they fell. And and then the disciples ask him, explain the the parable. And he says, the seed is the word of God. Mm. And it's about taking the seed of God, the, the word of Jesus and internalizing that. And I think this is the connection to prayer that only happens on that deepest level of consciousness where we're in that place, that silence, where we're alone with God, 
and the words of Jesus start to make sense mm. because they don't make sense from who we are in the world. From who we are in the world, Jesus stuff is just, it's crazy stuff. Yeah. And that's why prayer is so essential. Mm. I love what you said about how we tend to love the Bible and not so much the words of Jesus quite as much as the Bible. And I can't remember who it was, but I read it in a book somewhere, but the author was saying that oftentimes we read um, Jesus and the gospels through the lens of the old Testament, exactly. the letters of Paul, things like that. When in reality, we need to flip it and read the Bible exactly. and the letters of Paul and everything else through the lens of Jesus. And we all exactly. Yeah, exactly. Taking on the mind of Christ. Uh, it's, I, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Second Truth. I still use it in my intro class, but it talks about our first truth is what we learn at our mother's knee. It's our cultural, historical way of understanding the world that's passed on to us from generation to generation. When you start reading the words of Jesus, you realize he's talking about something completely different. <laughs> and the second truth is us coming to take on that Jesus perspective. Let me see the world the way Jesus saw the world. And it's when you start to take on that Jesus perspective that all of a sudden, oh, wait a second, things look completely different. Mm. And then once you have that Jesus perspective, you read the Old Testament through that. And then you see, oh, wow, it's, it's all about God's mercy and forgiveness. Mm. And uh, even looking forward into the New Testament, uh, it, there's a lot of uh, stuff in the in the epistles that, some of it's great, and some of it, eh, you see that 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 worldly stuff coming back in, you know. And of course, you know the the church rejoices uh, when Constantine becomes a Christian, and Christian Christianity becomes the official uh, with the next emperor anyway, uh, the official religion of Rome. Mm. Uh, I don't know if that was a good idea. Right? <laughs> uh, it just made Christianity into a worldly thing. Mm. But what's kind of cool, you know, I, I, w I was raised a Catholic and uh, and uh, then I became a born again Christian and, and uh, have always gone to evangelical churches, charismatic churches. But uh, there was there was something in that Catholic tradition that uh, about the idea of the saint, not somebody that the Catholic Church was confident was in heaven, but somebody that really took the gospel seriously. You know, and I just see there's a real lack of that amongst us evangelicals. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're just not taking Jesus' word seriously. Uh, That's really good. I, I challenge myself in the last maybe six months or so to uh, just read nothing but the Gospels in my Bible. Yeah. And it yeah. really opened up my eyes to perhaps ways I've misread the rest of the Bible. Yeah. 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 It's good. So let's, uh, let's move on. Let's talk about identity for a minute. Um, you talk in the book about how uh, our ideas of beauty and uh, goodness are often given to us by our culture, uh, sure. but we can easily mistaken those things as God given. So as I was reading the book, I was trying to think of like an example from my own life. And um, I live in North Carolina and we moved down here about a year and a half ago. And so I'm like, right. And we're like right in the middle of the Bible belt. And there's like literally, you know, a church in every corner uh, sometimes there's like churches across the street. It's like, like they're almost like competing churches, but outside, <laughs> outside of the churches, everybody's got a sign. And on the signs are these phrases and slogans that are meant to kind of pick at your interest and get you to come in and hear the sermon on Sunday. And one of the things I've noticed is that there's a, a huge message that a lot of these signs often have in common. And the message is that God 
wants you to be happy. He wants you to be successful and he wants you to be comfortably wealthy, something along those lines. And after reading your book and kind of thinking about these signs, I'm beginning to think that it's not so much that God who wants me to be happy, successful, and comfortably wealthy, as much as it is the prevalent North American evangelical culture that makes me think I'm supposed to be those things if I'm living in proper alignment with what God wants for my life. And so what I've noticed is that when I think it's God who wants those things for me, not only do I feel like a failure to him when I don't achieve them, uh, but when I see other people who are not happy, not successful by the world's eyes, and maybe not um, comfortably wealthy, it's easy to look down on them and think maybe less of them as well. Uh, like they must have done something wrong. You know, they're not pleasing to God. They're living outside of God's will. And so I guess my question is, why is it important for us to distinguish between pieces of our identity that are culture given versus God given? And even more than that, what can happen when we fail to make that distinction and assume that everything about our identity and about our lives is given to us by God? Yeah, we're just so far off base. You know, uh, evangelicals, the two big sins are abortion and homosexuality. That's right. Uh, two things that Jesus never talks about. That's true. Uh, and what, what I find amazing is for heterosexual males, those are two sins that they can never be guilty of. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting that they think these are God's big sins? Oh, know? wow. I never thought of that. And, and yeah. The, the real sins, the two sins that Jesus... Uh, talks more about than anything else. The first is hypocrisy, uh, believing that you're righteous because of what you do and how you act and and what you believe. And the second one is wealth. Uh, He doesn't preach against anything as much as wealth Hmm. because it's wealth that adds to our identity in the world. It's what confirms us in the belief that I am who I am in the world. Look at, look at my wealth. Look at my power. Look at my prestige. You read the sermon, the Beatitudes alone set it up. You know, it's just Jesus is calling us to go in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in, in, the, in the Catholic tradition, uh, there's always been the monastics who one of the things that the monastics take is of our poverty. You, you have to be poor. You have to be poor. It's too easy to start to identify with wealth and success. And like you say, you start thinking, God is blessing me. God is blessing me. Mm. And they point to the Old Testament and they're, they're right. You know, my wife says to me all the time, uh, you know, well, God blessed people with wealth in the Old Testament. I know, but listen to what Jesus is saying about wealth. I mean, he goes on and on about it. And when you mention wealth to people, they go, oh, well, it's, it's the love of, you know, and they quote Paul. No, but read the things that Jesus says. Uh, you know, there's the parable about Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man doesn't even get a name. And it doesn't tell you that he did anything wrong. He just was rich. And he didn't notice Lazarus, the beggar, at his gate. Uh, I, I would hate to be a billionaire today and have to face Jesus. And, uh, you know, wait a second. You, you had... You bought a third yacht and you didn't know that there were children starving in the world? Really? <laughs> did, did you ever hear what, what I said about loving your neighbor as yourself? You right, know? right. Uh, how, do you, how do you not see this as, as sin? Uh, it's just incredible. It's just, uh, we're, we're so far from the gospel. Uh, 
Mm. We're so far, we've created an artificial gospel. If, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you're going to heaven. So shut up and just enjoy your life. Yeah. Uh, and, mm. That's really good. I think that, that parable of Lazarus and the rich man, something I've been thinking a lot about lately, because even, you know, even a, kind of the way that Jesus tells the story is that in, in life, uh, the rich man didn't notice Lazarus. And then even in the afterlife, in this picture of Hades, uh, the rich man still doesn't recognize Lazarus and still doesn't yeah. even know who he is and still doesn't give him the time yeah. of day. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, so, amazing. You know, in, in the book that we're talking about, uh, there's a chapter on the Sermon on the Mountain. There's a chapter on the parables of Jesus. And what it tries to show is that the only way the parables and the, the Sermon on the Mount make sense is from that deep identity in God, uh, that, that we've gone to that place enough where we're alone in the silence and the solitude of God, that we really come to identify with that. Mm. And from that place, from that perspective, we can really, all of a sudden, the parables make such sense. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the, the Sermon on the Mount makes such sense. You know? mm. So what, is, what does the Bible say about our identity? If our identity is not in those things, um, what does it say about us? Yeah, you know, identity is a way that we've come to talk about it. I, I, uh, the, the Bible certainly doesn't use that, that terminology. Uh, other than Jesus is constantly talking about uh, his relationship with the Father. And, uh, you know, what's amazing to me, too, is 27 times we're, we're great at believing that Jesus is the Son of God. And we think, oh, you got to believe that Jesus is God. you got to believe. But what Jesus says 27 times is your Father, our Father, your Heavenly Father. He's telling you that the God of the universe is your father, mm. uh, not just his father, but your father. Does anybody really believe that? Yeah. Uh, and I think Christians go, oh, oh yeah, yeah, no, yeah, but you really don't believe it. Mm. Uh, you, you, you don't get it. You know, he says it 16 times in the sermon alone. It refers to the God of the universe as your father. And that's the real source of our identity. Do you, mm. do you identify with the world? Or do you identify with God mm. and uh, God is your father uh, and the source of your identity? Uh, it's, I think it's one of the reasons Jesus says, unless you hate your mother and father, your brothers and sisters, uh, you know, even your own life, uh, you think those are your own. They're not. They're right. not. Mm. It's, your, it's your heavenly father. Did, did you know Dan Wanless at uh, Nyack? I did. You did? Yeah. He, uh, he, you know, he used to teach Kierkegaard for me, and uh, he, he, he was able to do stuff in, uh, in class that was just unbelievable. And he told a story one time when he was, uh, his, his mother had just made a commitment to the Lord, and she got pregnant with Dan, and they already had three kids. And uh, the father said, uh, I'm not having a fourth kid, have an abortion. And she refused. And... Uh, the father took off. So Dan was raised without a father. And he tells this unbelievable story uh, about a friend of his who had a really great father who would, was very active in his son's life and would take his son on picnics and take his son to ball games. And, and he always included Dan. And Dan said, you know, he was really a nice guy. But I always knew that he preferred his son to me. Mm. And then he said, 
I always thought there was something evil about that. And the only way it wouldn't be evil is if there was a father who loved everybody the same. Mm. All of a sudden you realize, oh my God, only the orphan can see that. We can't see that from who we are in the world. Yeah. I told my wife that and she's out oh, Dan's just being a jerk. That guy was a good guy. Yeah. In the world, that guy's a great guy. Mm. But you see, the orphan can see the truth, the marginalized. And that's why Jesus is always talking to the marginalized. Uh, because the people that are in the middle of the world, the, the ones that are benefiting from the world, can't see it. Mm. They can't see it. It's good to love your family. Yeah. And, but the orphan knows something else, uh, knows that the only way that you could really be a good father is if you loved everybody the same. And that's who God is. And that's what we don't get. What, what we do in religion is, no, he loves the people on this side of the river. He loves the people who believe these things. He loves the people. And, and what we have to do is get to that same place that Jesus got to where he realizes, no, no, no. God loves you at the core of your being. He doesn't love this, this identity that you and the world have created. That's a false identity. That is not who you are. Mm. Who you are is who Jesus is when he spends time in prayer with the Father. And that's what he's always calling us to, to that same place, uh, that deep place where we're just that pure consciousness, that the, the silence that you experience mm. uh, in God's presence. Uh, that's what causes us to start to identify with God and make sense of the Gospels. That's really good. Wow. Let me talk to you about uh, prayer um, real quick, and then we're kind of getting short on time. But um, in the book, you talk about how prayer is the ultimate form of identity. And right. uh, I just want to read this real quick quote. You said, it's about getting us to that place at the core of our being where we identify with God rather than with who we are in the world. Um, it's the most meaningful form then. Uh, prayer is not a matter of making petitions to God in order to get our petty pleasures fulfilled in order to make us happy. It's not about changing God, but about changing us. Uh, prayer is that altered state of awareness that takes us into our soul or the pure consciousness that we share with God. Here we experience a place where there is nothing between us and God. So two questions. Number one, is there a place for, or I should say, where is the place for petitionary prayer? Because I know for me and a lot of my uh, listeners, like growing up, that's what prayer was. You know, prayer was when you bring your stuff to God, you ask him to do stuff for you, whether it's make people better or, um, you know, provide for the family or whatever it might be. Uh, So number one, where is the place for petitionary prayer? And then number two, talk a little bit more about this altered consciousness in prayer, like how to get there, what happens when we do get there. Because again, for some of our listeners, I think the, the phrase altered consciousness makes people think of new age and then people think of the devil. And then we're going down a bad rabbit hole with bad reviews on iTunes. So, <laughs> so just talk to us maybe about those two things. Yeah, the, the place of partitioning prayer is those early places in the journey. You know, it, it's... It's a spiritual journey, and we don't begin the spiritual journey uh, with where I am at the end of 40 years. Uh, I used to do a lot of petitioning prayer. I used to, oh, God, you got to take this away from me, God. I can't. Oh, God, you got to meet me. I I have a need. I I need a car Monday, God. I just, uh, and that's that's where we are for a long time. Uh, I'm at a place now in my life where I couldn't imagine asking God of anything. Mm. I just couldn't imagine it. I just, 
why? Because I, I'm just hanging out with God all day. I, I've become something of a hermit, actually. Mm. Uh, and I just hang out with God all day. And I, I look back on my life and I just think it was so perfect. God just met me and met me and met me. Now, I, I tell my students all the time, you know, I, I'm 71 now. And, uh, yeah, you, you know, I got to shave the back of my ears because I got hair growing on the back <laughs> of my ears. So this things about being 71, you go, oh, that sort of sucks, you know, but the great thing about being 71 is I look back over my life and I go, Oh my God, look at that. God met me here and he met me here and he met me here. Uh, and you just saw just God's faithfulness of, of bringing you on in this journey. And young people, you know, if you're 18, you got nothing to look back on. You know, Kierkegaard said, life is lived forward, but it's understood backward. Uh, and early on in the journey, yeah, you, you're going to be petitioning because all you know is who you are in the world. Mm. You haven't come to that deep place yet. The journey is all about getting to that deep place. It's coming to that place in God where your identity is just lost in him. You're, uh, you know, I used to talk a lot about George Barclay, the Irish uh, empiricist philosopher. And his wife, Anne, once said of him, he was a God intoxicated man. He was God intoxicated. What a great thing to say about somebody. Mm. You know, he was God intoxicated. And but we don't start off there. We just start off petitioning God and and trying to get God to help us meet our needs in the world and stuff like this. But it's part of the journey. Hmm. Uh, and we want to think that it's that it's not a journey. It is. It is. I, uh, I had somebody uh, recently want to work with me on, on a book. And I had uh, been in graduate school with the person and uh, they were a Christian and uh, so we decided to work on, on a book together. And at one point I made the mistake. They said something and I said, oh, I know uh, that's where I was 15 years ago. And they got highly insulted. Uh, oh, you think you're in a better place than me? Uh, no, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not in a better place than anybody. <laughs> it's just, it is a journey. And, and the place I was 20 years ago, 30 years ago is not where I'm at now. Uh, I'm just in a better place in God, a deeper place. And that's the journey. It's not, the Christian life is not about getting your doctrine straight, believing the right uh, theology and waiting to go home. It's about becoming Jesus to the world. Mm -hmm. And the only way that happens is by internalizing his words. Mm -hmm. uh, and the only way that happens is by spending time in prayer and Jesus' words. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking the other day, uh, people say to me, well, why, why do you trust what you believe? Well, because there's nothing better to believe in besides my time in prayer and the stuff that comes to me in time of prayer, because it's always about the words of Jesus. And even if I'm wrong, I, I'll stand before God and go, God, I wanted to know you. I wanted to know you deeply. And if I was wrong, sorry, but I, I wanted to spend all my time in your words and really internalizing your words so I could be ever more like Jesus. Mm. Uh, that There is no better theology than that. If you say, oh, no, no, uh, it's better to believe in a theology that a whole bunch of other people believe because some 17th century theologian developed it and a whole bunch of people. Well, why do you believe in that rather than your own God experiences? 
and your own time in his presence and your own understanding of Jesus' words? Mm. Well, the answer is because I don't have the time to do that. I don't have the time to develop my own theology. So I just borrow somebody else's. Mm. Okay, well, I'm not doing that. I'm creating my own. And uh, I know at NIAC, you know, people say, well, Denner, you're a heretic. Yeah, and I'm proud of it uh, because my heresy is based on my time in God's presence and Jesus' words. Mm. And you can't get a better theology than that. And what's really cool is that it's always going to be different from somebody else's theology who's spending time in Jesus' presence uh, and and spending time in Jesus' words and God's presence. Because it's personal. It's personal. This is my understanding of who God is based on Jesus' words and time in, in God's presence. It's mm, really good. I, I have a better theology than that. Yeah. I had a discussion with somebody on Facebook not that long ago, and it was kind of one of those conversations where, you know, they were throwing around the word heretic and stuff, and um, <laughs> <laughs> you know how that is. And I, uh, yeah. we were talking about just this whole idea of um, – like reading the Bible, understanding God. And the person was saying, well, you know, I think the Bible is extremely literal and you have to take everything that it says literal. And, you know, I was talking about how I've grown in my faith and my faith has changed and it's evolved. And I've, you know, like, even like with the whole idea of LGBTQ inclusion, like I used to be on one end of the spectrum that said, it's all a sin. Now I'm like, let everybody in. Got, you know, I just, yeah. I'm on the totally other side and it only happened because of my life experiences. And my time with Jesus and, you know, my thoughts have changed. And then the person said, well, what if you're wrong? Like, what if you get to heaven? And what if, you know, the Bible is literal? What if Jesus tells you that you're wrong? I said, well, I would have to say, I'm sorry. You know, I was trying to model what I saw you doing in the gospel. And I guess I got it wrong, (laughs) you know, but this is what I've come to understand God as in my journey. How about this? What if Jesus isn't God and the God that actually rules the universe is a satanic kind of God that, that, tortures people eternally and stuff like this. Well, I'll go to hell with Jesus. That's right. <laughs> it's about Jesus. I'm going with Jesus. Wherever Jesus takes me, that's where I'm going. That's right. Uh, it's not, uh, you know, you, you can't fall in love with a savior. Mm. Uh, you, you only fall in love when you see the beauty and the goodness of Jesus' words. Uh, that's what you fall in love with. You can be grateful to a savior. Thank you for saving me. But uh, you only fall in love with the beauty of Jesus' words. Right. And like I say, that's that's real hard to do from who we are in the world. Mm. They just don't seem very conducive to my life in the world. And that's yeah. why it really is about a transformation into a different way to be. Mm. So talk to me quick before we end about what does it look like to get to that altered consciousness place in prayer? Um, oh, it's uh, it's tough uh, to come into the silence. It's a practice you really need to develop. And I started in about, I don't know if it's 20, 25 years ago. I had never read anything about contemplative prayer or, or, uh, or meditation or anything like that. I just felt like God was uh, calling me to spend Saturday afternoon with him. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time, I... I I had two full-time jobs. I was head of arts and sciences at a college in Westchester, and I was head of philosophy at NIAC. Uh, I had a family. I was an elder in a church. I, I was constantly, I just had no time. 
And God asking me to spend time Saturday afternoon just in his presence just seemed crazy. Like, come on, God. <laughs> I know. I know. I just don't. God, you know, you, you got to loosen up my life a little bit. <laughs> right. But but I did it. And uh, I just came to love that time. And it, it wasn't reading the Bible. It was it was just being still before him. Mm. And uh, sometimes my wife would come into the room and she'd go, you're, you're just taking a nap. And I'd say, I'm taking a nap in the Lord. <laughs> into that stillness, that solitude of being in God's presence and, and just getting, you know how our minds, we have, Roar calls them monkey minds, just ideas just come. There's another, oh, I got to do this. Oh, there's just that. And we don't have control over our mind at all. And coming into this stillness is what the mystics were always talking about. Mm-hmm. And the practice of coming into that stillness, that quiet. And people go, yeah, but if, if you become silent, then all sorts of things. No, no, silence doesn't allow anything in but God. Mm-hmm. It's the great silence of God. And if I spend what, what I do now is I, I go to bed ridiculously early. I, I try to make it through jeopardy. It's, you know, and <laughs> I don't even make it. Uh, and then I sleep for about four hours and I wake up in the middle of the night and I spend a couple of hours in God's presence. But if I spend two and a half hours trying to come to that silence, if I can get 20 minutes out of that two and a half hours, that's pretty good mm-hmm. because your mind does take you back into the world. All of a sudden an idea comes. No, no. If it's not the words of Jesus, I don't care about it. Mm-hmm. I want the silence. I want the silence. I want the silence. And the only thing that I, I allow coming into that silence are the words of Jesus and uh, an understanding of the words of Jesus that's bringing me deeper and deeper into uh, into the life that he's calling me to. For those of us who might be like early on in our uh, maybe journey of contemplative prayer, do you find uh, is it necessary to have grace on yourself? Uh, because it's easy to listen to people like yourself and um, others just like Richard Rohr and they talk about it a lot and um, right. just be like, Oh, I need to, I need to get to that point. But you know, if you were kind of have a, if we've never done this before and this isn't something that's part of our normal practice um, I imagine it's wise to start off with goals of small doses. I would think. Yeah. 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 yeah do what you can mm-hmm. do what you can, but it's about spending time in his presence. Uh, and like I, I have the luxury now I'm retired. Uh, I, I don't have to work anymore. I can spend all day in God's presence. Uh, you can't do that. My pastor can't do that. Yeah. My pastor's constantly ministering to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't have the luxury that I have, but uh, he still tries to make time. He still gets alone with God. And you come to love that that time more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's that experience of the silence that brings us to Jesus' words. Because in in that silence, we really are who we are in relationship to God. The the person that we've created and the world that's created, that's that's the lie of the false self, you know? Uh, And I think that the spiritual life is, is a life where that, that life has to die. You know, at the end, the, uh, the uh, hostage people, uh, hospice people are coming to understand what this dying process is all about. And I think what contemplative prayer is starting that dying process early, 
Uh, we don't have to wait until we die to get to that place <laughs> where the flesh is starting to die. Uh, you can do it through prayer, mm. just coming into the solitude and silence of being alone with God. It's really good. Yeah. Wow. Well, doctor, uh, thank you so much uh, for coming on the podcast with me. I appreciate you taking the time to talk. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. This is launch day for you. Your book is out. It's out in the world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where can people go and get it? Uh, well, it's uh, Paragon House is is great. They're my publisher, and uh, they have it at Walmart and uh, Target, and of course Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble. It's all over the place. I just saw that it's at eighty eighty four different. Uh, publishers or or houses are offering it right now okay awesome and when is this uh next one coming out the one on the surface mount no i I, i'll have it done uh probably in two three months but uh paragon house won't bring it out until 2020 i'm sure they don't like to stack them up too too close to one another gotcha so i'm figuring march uh, paragon house only releases twice a year september 1st and march 1st okay so it'll probably be march 1st of 2020 well, then we'll have to get you back on here again. Sounds great. That'd be a lot of fun. All right, sir. Well, thank you so much. And I'll Oh, thank you, Glenn. No problem. Good catching up with you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. God bless. You too. So that was fun, right? I mean, Danaher is an amazing man. And uh, I've got to say that after we finished recording, I hit stop. And I continued to pick his brain a little bit. And he had so much uh, just like encouraging stuff to share with me, in particular about navigating through a season of life like I'm in, and many of you are in as well, where we're kind of deconstructing and reconstructing our faith. So, so good, so helpful, uh, so much hope. And I think I might have him back on maybe sometime soon talk a little bit more about those kinds of things so uh but all that will come later for now um again thank you for stopping by thank you for checking out episode number 31 and uh we will see you next time bye-bye